if only I could get to a place in my Christian life where I was really mature, where I wasn't doing stupid things, where I'd learnt my lessons, then God could really bless me, couldn't he? If only you could get to a place in your Christian life where you stop doing stupid things, that's the time God's going to bless you. There's a huge lesson that we need to be reminded of, we need to learn tonight. And this is the sermon in one sentence, God's goodness to us rests in his grace and faithfulness and not our performance. God's goodness to us rests in his grace and faithfulness and not in our performance. It's not about me. We should want to be the best Christians we can be. But it's not about me and it's not about you getting to a place of maturity, to get into a place where we no longer mess up and then God will bless us and then God will use us. In this passage, Abram has one of the most sinful, faithless, stupid episodes of his life. I think one of the worst episodes of his life because he's a spiritually mature Christian at the point. And immediately afterwards... God gives him his greatest blessing. Because God's goodness to us rests in his grace and faithfulness and not in our performance. There's a story that that Don Carson tells brilliantly. I'm going to try and paraphrase it. It goes something like this. It says, do you ever have a day like this? You get up in the morning, it's drizzly and grey. You reach for a fresh pair of socks, but you can't find two that match. You stub your toe on a nail sticking out the skirting board that you'd been meaning to fix for the past three years. You cut yourself shaving, stumble down to breakfast, but your wife's left early and there's nothing in the cupboards. You go out to the car, turn the key, and the ignition's dead. You've been meaning to get the battery fixed. You get to work late, people are rude to you. You find loads of problems to deal with. Your boss is having a go at you uh, for not being on time and for not finishing your job properly yesterday. The day goes in the same vein. You have chances to witness to people, but you're not in the right frame of mind. You bump into someone who you know at the petrol station. They ask something about Christianity. You answer them sharp and curt, and you leave them feeling awkward. You get home, and it's beans on toast for dinner. You pass a comment to your wife about the food, and they volley a comment back. Kids are irritable, messing about. Your wife wants you to do a few jobs around the house. You just want to sit down and watch football. It's bedtime. It's been a rubbish day. You get into bed and your prayer goes like this. Dear God, it's been a rotten day. I'm not proud of myself. I'm sorry I haven't done better. Forgive my sins. Bless my kids. Your will be done. Amen. A few days later you wake up. It's a beautiful sunny day. You can smell bacon and eggs as you walk downstairs. You have a lovely family breakfast. After your breakfast you have a lovely quiet time with your wife. Put your key in the ignition. It starts first time. You're early for work. Your boss praises you for the job you did yesterday. Tells you you're getting a raise. People are friendly to you. You bump into the same person you've been rude to at the garage. And amazingly, they ask you another question about Christianity. You speak to them with wisdom, tact, gentleness and courtesy. You explain the gospel to them in two minutes and they promise you they're going to come to church on Sunday. You get home, there's a gorgeous roast dinner on the table. You have a lovely family time around the table. The kids are engaging, you do happy and sad. You pray together. The kids are well behaved. You have a lovely evening with your wife. And before you go to bed, you pray like this. Eternal and matchless God, I bow down in your glorious presence with brokenness and gratitude. I bless you that in your infinite mercies and great grace you poured favor on me. 
I am not worthy of the least of your mercies. You go on to thank God for everything in the day. Then you pray for all the missionaries that you know, their children and their cousins. You pray for everybody in the church by name. Meditate on all the names of Christ you can think of in the Bible. 45 minutes go by. You go to bed and fall to sleep instantly. In fact, you go to sleep justified. And he asks the question, on which of those days have you behaved like a pagan? How dare we approach, he says this, how dare we approach the mercy seat of God based on what kind of day we've had? How dare we expect that God's more pleased with us because we've performed well that day? He says this is works theology. It's works theology. Our acceptance and favor before God rests only in the blood of Jesus. How can, we, how can we think that God's blessings or God's favor are some kind of reward for our performance? God's goodness to us rests in his grace and faithfulness and not in our performance. That's the thing we're going to be reminded of tonight. God's good to us, not because we've deserved it, not because we've earned it, not because we finally reach a level of maturity that he thinks, now then, I can use them. God Goodness to us rests in his grace and his faithfulness, not our performance. We know the story, don't we, with Abraham by now. We've been doing it for weeks and weeks. 25 years ago, God made a promise to Abraham when he was seven, 75 years old, couldn't have children, hadn't got children, said, I'm going to give you a child and make a great nation of you. And God blesses Abraham in amazing ways, not yet with children. He gives him victory. He gives him protection. Even when Abraham is... Abram's stupid before Pharaoh because he goes before Pharaoh and, and he lies and says that his wife's his sister, not his wife. I bet he won't do that again. Uh, and the Lord rescues him. And the Lord reaffirms the promise of a son to him. And Abram tries to help the Lord out because he has a son with his maid, Hagar. And the Lord says, no, that's not how it's going to work, Abram. The, the son's going to come from Sarah, you know, the one who's old and can't have kids. And then we see a bit of maturity from Abram. He seems to, he seems to start growing in his faith. We have chapter 18, and there's a maturity in his prayer, how he, how he reasons with God. And then we have Sodom destroyed with Lot, and then we come to chapter 21, and after 25 years, Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, the son of promise is born. Abraham's finally sanctified enough for God to bless him. Finally, is godly enough to be a father. Finally, Abraham's arrived at the required level of sanctification, and now God's going to reward him. Is that what happens? Let's look before we get to it. We've missed out chapter 20, haven't we? We need to rewind and look at chapter 20. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. They've been believers for 25 years, the mature Christians. Abraham's had this encounter where he prays amazingly in chapter 18. And we remember all of God's promises for the future, they're all tied in. Even the birth of Jesus, it's all tied in with Abraham and Sarah having a son. And they're on the travels, and they go to this place called Gerah. It's non-Christian turf, it's heathen turf. And Abraham tells Sarah, make out you my sister, so I don't get lynched. He's done exactly the same thing again, hasn't he, that he'd done years and years ago. You think, haven't you learned your lesson? This is mature, Abraham. So it's, it's such a problem that some of the commentaries try and explain how this is actually the same 
same thing that he'd done with Pharaoh, but it's just it's told in a different way. It was one event, but they've told it twice. Uh, and they do that because they think he couldn't have done the same thing twice, could he? <laughs> they don't know, them commentators don't know human nature. They don't know me. And two things jump out at us. Firstly, Sarah was 90 and still beautiful. And secondly, what on earth is Abraham thinking? Abraham, you've already done this once in Egypt. And we'll excuse you for that. You're quite a new believer. You put the promise in jeopardy. You escape by the skin of your teeth. But now you're mature, Abraham. Now, now you've been a Christian for 25 years. And again, he lies about Sarah being his wife. He, he puts her in danger. He again risks everything. And sure enough, Sarah's spotted. She's taken by the king, who was called Abimelech, and, and he takes her to join his posse of women. And again, Abraham's powerless. We're reminded that with the promise isn't safe with Abraham. Mature believer. He should have trusted God, but he trusts himself again. So glad that now I've been a Christian about 25 years now. So glad that I don't make the same mistakes twice. So glad that I've reached a place of sanctification where I never do stupid stuff like I did when I was 18. So glad that, that now God can, I must be ready for God to use me. Well, here's Abraham. Told by God in the chapter previous, in a year's time, this son's going to come. This all-important ingredient, Abraham, you've been waiting for, is coming next year. You know, you, you think, well, whatever you do, just be sensible this year. And during the most important year of their lives, as mature believers, he takes his wife to a pagan country, allows her to go to a foreign king. You think, Abraham, what on earth are you playing at, you stupid man? Once again, he's put the promise in jeopardy, just like he did in chapter 13. I think it's worse this time because he's mature. And again, just like he did in chapter 13 with Pharaoh, the Lord steps in. In verse 3, the Lord appears to Abimelech in a dream. He says, you are a dead man because you took another man's wife. We think, how seriously does God take adultery? You are a dead man. And the Lord gives Abimelech, calls Abimelech to repentance. And Abimelech repents straight away. Abimelech calls Abraham and he, and he rebukes Abraham and says, why did you do this to me? This is a Christian having to be rebuked by a non-Christian. It's embarrassing. And in verse 11, Abraham explains his reasons. He said, well, I thought when I came to Gera, there's no fear of God in this place. But it seems Abimelech had more fear of God than Abraham. It's Abraham who wasn't fearing God. And again, totally undeserving. Just like with Pharaoh, Abraham leaves richer. Abimelech gives him a thousand pieces of silver, we're told. A laborer in those days earned six pieces of silver a year. Abraham leaves with 160 years' wages of an average bloke in his pocket after doing something stupid and sinful and disobedient. And Abraham prays for Abimelech. God removes the curse because God had made it so Abimelech, there were no children born in his house and Abraham and Abimelech become friends. This is not Abraham. This is Abraham. This is mature, godly Abraham. It's not the first time he's done this. It's the second time he's done it. How often can we be 
Well, you've had one chance. I'm not giving you another. I've heard Christians talk. I've heard Christians boast how no one will make a mug out of them. But, but I'm so glad that that's not how the Lord is with me. And here's the, the, the big point of it all. It's immediately after this that the Lord visits them and gives them a child. It's immediately after Abraham's probably biggest fall, biggest mistake, that the Lord gives him his biggest blessing. And I think that the lesson in that is so important. Immediately after the most stupid few months of his life, God gives him his biggest blessing in his life. What's it teaching us? It ain't about our performance. We can be like the bloke in that story, can't we? Confident before God because we've had a good day. As though it was somehow closer to sanctification and somehow we're more in line for blessing because we've done well. God's blessings are not proportionate to our performance. If this church grows and fills up and we pray it will and loads of people get saved, it won't be because I'm a super pastor. Also, if the church shrinks, it's not because I'm a rubbish pastor, so I've covered myself there, haven't I? If God's merciful and he blesses your family and he saves all your kids, you don't get to say, well, it must be because I've done such a good job. And although there are correlations, if, if none of your kids are saved, you don't get to say, well, I have failed. If God gives you massive material blessings, you don't get to say, haven't I been godly? And if in this world God doesn't give you material blessings, you don't say, I've been a failure. It's not how God works. And, and we'd never say it, but in our minds we think like that. I, I think like it about my kids. Now, I know I've got things wrong, and we've all got things wrong. I think, what should I have done that would have worked? Well, God's blessing him based on my performance so when does this happen when does this son arrive well it's not just after Abraham's been stupid Abraham being stupid isn't the trigger for God to bless him but four times in the first few verses of chapter 21 we're told this child arrived at the time the Lord had spoken We're reminded that it's God who's in control because at the end of chapter 20 he closes wombs and at the beginning of chapter 21 he opens one. And four times we're told, as the Lord had spoke. See, Abraham becomes a father, Sarah becomes a mother at 190 respectively and Sarah laughs when we finish with the verse, who'd have thought it? Well, we should have thought it because the Lord promised. Why does Abraham and Sarah get blessed with his child? It's not because of Abraham's performance. It's because God promised. That's what it rests on. It rests on God promising. Why does God love you and me? Why does he put up with you and me? Because he loves us and he's promised. His favour isn't performance related. We're no more deserving. We're no more ready for God to bless us on our best day than on our worst day. We're no more ready for God to bless us after 25 years as a Christian than after two minutes. We've got to understand how God's grace works. I remember 
I remember where I was actually the first time I read the story of Esau and Jacob. And I was furious because I thought Esau were a far better son. And I wanted him to kill Jacob. And I wanted him to get the inheritance. And I remember reading through the Old Testament and after about the 10th deliberate disobedience in the wilderness, I was thinking, oh, just wipe them out, Lord. I'm sure that we understand how grace works until we see it working. We have to be ever so careful, don't we, that we don't look at other people and think that they're only useful, they're only ready to serve and be used until they've arrived. I think the past 20 years or so, and I'm, listen, part of this is my problem, I think, we, we've, I think we're redressing the balance, but I think we could have skewed things like, like membership and using people in the church. Almost waiting for people to arrive when the reality is we're looking for people who've begun. We have, to, we have to grapple with this thing of grace, don't we? And, and grace can feel offensive, especially when it's shown to others, especially when it's shown to people who are doing the same stupid things time and time again. We don't sin that, that grace may abound. This is not a, a free-for-all. If Abraham's behavior in chapter 20 would have been the pattern for the rest of his life, would have had to say he was probably not saved. But godly people do stupid things. Mature Christians after 25 years do stupid things. Godly people don't always get it right. You look at David, mature Christian. You look at Peter, mature Christian. You look at Elijah, a mature Christian. If we waited for Abraham to be ready for God to use him, we'd still be waiting for Isaac to be born. What's surprising is this thing of Abraham making the same mistake, the same sin twice. How do we respond when somebody does the same thing twice? How do we respond when someone lets us down in the same way twice? I know how some Christians behave if someone lets you down once, but twice. How many times should we forgive somebody when they sin and they repent? There's some Christians, aren't they? And if you block the copybook once, you're in the doghouse for years. Blot it twice, you're finished. How often do we do stupid things, the same stupid things? Same sinful thing again and again and again. You have to say, don't you, Isaac doesn't come because of Abraham's performance. Praise God that every time I mess up and you mess up, and there's nobody in here tonight who can say we've met up to God's expectations, Praise God that, that his grace is, is not just greater, it's more stubborn than our sin. Praise God that our foolishness doesn't take us out of his plans. Praise God that you and me, we are going to get to heaven, not because we've promised to follow Jesus, but because he's promised to keep us. And if we respond to God's grace, we think, well, well that's all right then, we can do what we want and we'll be okay then we're probably not saved if we think like that. How should we live before a God who's gracious? How should we live before a God who, who, who's merciful to us? How should it make us think about his grace and how we should treat his grace? Well, we're at the circus and there's two trapeze artists. You've seen trapeze artists, haven't you? 
nearly always have a net underneath them. Why is the net there? Is it to encourage them to fall or to save them when they fall? Is it to encourage them to be better trapezists or encourage them to be lazy trapezists? So here's these two trapezists and one trapezist, trapezist, one trapeze artist. He has this attitude towards the net. He says, this net frees me to be the best trapeze artist I can be. I don't want to fall, but you know what? I can enjoy being a trapeze artist. I know if I fall, it's not going to kill me. I can stretch myself because the net gives me this confidence I can perform without constantly being afraid. It actually pushes me to be a better trapeze artist. And he has the odd fall but you see the improvement in his act over time. And when he falls, you can see how he's disappointed, but he gets back up and he carries on. The net's actually pushing him towards excellence. The other trapeze artist, he's got this attitude. This is brilliant, I don't have to try. Don't have to practice. Don't have to worry about falling, there's a net there. It's easy. In fact, his party trick is he, he deliberately falls from the high wire. He falls about five times every performance and he, he seems to enjoy it. He bounces on the net and he laughs. After a few weeks, circus master comes to him. So I don't think you understand why the net's there, mate. I don't think you're cut out to be a trapeze artist, but we have got a vacancy for a clown. See, because we know that God's gracious, because we know there is in complete control, we don't treat grace flippantly, do we? We don't sin that grace may have. We don't treat grace as a, as, a, as a net. We don't treat the blood of Jesus flippantly. But we do live for him and serve him, not having to look over our shoulder, not having to think, if I have a bad day today, I'm doomed. We know as Christians, if we fall and fail, which we will, we're not falling from grace, we're falling into grace. Why did Abraham and Sarah receive the son of promise? Was it because the faith had peaked? No. It was because God had promised. And Sarah responds with gladness because after 25 years, after everything they've been through, after all the failures with Hagar and Pharaoh and Abimelech, there's joy because God kept his promise. Why are me and you going to make it to heaven? Because God will keep his promise. He's a God of his word. His grace He's greater than our sin. We, we, we don't use sin that, that grace may abound. We, 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 we use grace to fuel us to be the best Christians we can be. We're in Galatians on Sunday morning, aren't we? And when Paul, Galatians is all about this argument between law and grace, between performance and ritual and religion and trusting in God's goodness. Which one's going to be the fuel to live a godly life? Is keeping laws going to be the fuel or is trusting in grace going to be the fuel? And when Paul wants to summarize his whole argument, it goes to Isaac's birth. And his point is God's, God's undeserved blessings come about because he's faithful, not because we're faithful. As Sarah receives this promised son, we see the joy he brought to her. She rejoices, she sings, she says, God's made me laugh. Everyone who hears me will laugh with me. Who would have thought that Abraham and Sarah had nursed children? I have born him a son in his old age. And yet we see this, Isaac wasn't the end of the promise, was he? Isaac was just the beginning of the promise. Isaac's the start of the promise. God had, God had made a bigger promise. God had a promise to keep for Abraham and for me and for you that miles greater than Isaac, but it had to start with Isaac. 
And God's people didn't have to wait 25 years, they had to wait 2,000 years. And when God finally kept his promise of sending Jesus, it didn't come when his people had got it together. The 2,000 year wait wasn't so that people would get their act together. Simeon reminds in Luke 2, doesn't he? Jesus was born into great darkness. God's people are under Roman occupation. They're under Roman occupation because they're experiencing the consequences of centuries of disobedience. They weren't living some victorious, faithful life. That if I live a victorious life, God will bless me. If God waited to send Jesus till they were deserving, we'd still be waiting. Because our confidence isn't in our performance, it's in God's promises. Jesus has come and he's lived the only life that fully deserved God to bless. And because of that, we've got an unending source of grace. It took 25 years for Abraham and Sarah to receive this son. They made the mistakes, but God's promise to Abraham wasn't, leave all, follow me, get everything right, and I'll bless you. It was leave all, follow me, and I'll bless you. His promise to us, God's promise to us isn't leave your old life, follow me and make sure you get it right and I'll bless you. It's leave your old life, follow me, I'll bless you. Sin should always grieve us but we've got to remember God's grace is more stubborn than our sin. It doesn't reward us based on our performance, it rewards us based on his promises and his grace. Maybe you're grieving now and you're feeling rubbish. There's a sense we should feel rubbish for our sin. But maybe you're feeling absolutely rubbish because of something you've done in the past or something you've done in the present or recently. And yeah, we need to repent. But if you love Jesus, you need to know this, that his blessing to you won't fail because you fail. His blessing to you is tied up in the fact that Jesus never failed. If we want to play loose with sin, look at Lot. But if we want to have confidence that our failure isn't fatal, look at Jesus. We need to realize our promise of salvation, it doesn't depend on our ability to make the great, it depends on God's word, it depends on Jesus, and he says, all that call on my name will be saved. That's how we get a blessing. Call on the name of the Lord. And trust that that God keeps his promises. I think it's a tremendously encouraging passage, this. We see Abraham at his worst, and then we see his biggest blessing. And it's a remind, reminder to us, isn't it? We don't mess about with sin. We don't sin that grace may abound. But God is, is so faithful to us and so loving to us and so kind to us that all his blessings come to us in Jesus, not because of our performance. We're going to sing now, and I don't even know what it is. I forgot. Jesus paid it all. We couldn't finish with a better one than that, could we?
Can we just put that words to that last verse up? The one before, that's it. And when before the throne, I stand in him complete. Jesus died, my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Father, any blessing we are due and that we're getting is because Jesus has died to save us. And it's all, all our blessings are wrapped up in him. And yet, we will experience blessing. We will experience joy and comfort and love like we, we can't even grasp because of Jesus, because you are faithful. Lord, help us to seek after faithfulness because we know it's a mark of a Christian. But help us to get our thinking straight, Lord, and understand that it's your faithfulness that we rely on. It's your faithfulness that we treasure. And in this, cause us to strive after that faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that your blessings don't come about because of our performance, but because of your mercy and grace. Keep us, we pray. Amen.